This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to the first Navarra Live of 2024. We are back from our short break. Um, and this is a very big news day. Lots to talk about, lots to catch up on. I'll be joined later by my colleague Ash Sarkar. And coming up later on the show, we'll be discussing South Africa's filing at the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide. Junior doctors are back on strike in England and we'll be showing a somewhat depressing video about the modern world. Stay tuned for all of that. First story, Israel has now killed more than 22,000 people with thousands more under rubble. This is in Gaza, of course. More than half of them are women and children. It's an enormous crime and Israel has so far faced few consequences. And now the country seems intent on broadening out its war. Yesterday, Israel assassinated a Hamas leader in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. This is part of a report from Sky News. An attack at the heart of the leadership of Hamas, a senior member killed in a strike in southern Beirut, in Dahia. Salah Al-Aruri was a founding member of the Al-Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas, and deputy leader of the political wing of the group. Hamas called the attack a cowardly assassination. In a statement released by Hezbollah, it says its hand is on the trigger. So this is an extrajudicial killing of a political leader in a foreign capital. Now, that's a highly provocative action, which is why Israel won't formally admit that it was behind the attack. This is Netanyahu advisor Mark Regev being questioned on MSNBC. Don't you expect that a strike in downtown Beirut might have might lead to a Hezbollah response and open that northern front, which, of course, Israel and the United States have been very concerned against a second front opening to the north. So I think it's obvious. Obviously, in Lebanon, there are many Hezbollah targets, but whoever did this strike was very surgical and went for a Hamas target because Israel is at war. Uh, 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 whoever did this uh, has, a, has a gripe with Hamas. Uh, 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 it's Once again, whoever did this, it's not an attack on the Lebanese state. It's not an attack on the Hezbollah terrorist organization. Whoever did this, it's an attack on Hamas. Whoever did this strike, by the way, it was a brilliant, very surgical strike. And brilliant strike. And by the way, it was only to Hamas because Israel is, is against Hamas. Oh, no, someone, whoever did the strike is against Hamas. He's it, it, kind of mocking us, right? And, you know, that could be funny if it weren't about something so serious as if this weren't a, a government committing genocide, right? They're, they're mocking the world listening to that. One thing Regev was right about is that this strike, whoever did it, um, was surgical. Salah al-Aruri is the Hamas deputy leader, and he was killed um, alongside two Hamas military commanders and four other members. No Lebanese civilians were killed. And that's got some asking why Israel couldn't have used more targeted strikes in Gaza. Charlie Herbert is a major general in the British Army. It's a good question to ask. Could they have done it? It's a very different environment, of course, Gaza. Number one, most of the Hamas leadership in Gaza is underground. It's using this tunnel network. So they're very difficult to find and they're very difficult to strike. And when Israel does strike them in Gaza, they obviously need to use bunker-busting munitions, much, much larger bombs, you know, £1,000, £2,000 in order to penetrate that tunnel. So there are significant differences. But I think it is a really good question. Could Israel have conducted a campaign in Gaza that was more precise, used greater distinction, perhaps greater legality, over a longer period to achieve the same effect, but without killing so many thousands of civilians. And I think the question there is, is undoubtedly they could have done. I mean, but of course, ultimately, Wilf, there is no military solution to this campaign. Ultimately, this requires a parallel political track. There's not going to be any decisive military victory, irrespective of how that campaign is fought in Gaza. So he was talking there about the fact that Hamas are underground in Gaza. Now, that obviously does make it more difficult to to take out targets with drones, for example, you will have to use heavier bombs. But there is another reason why Israel's campaign in Gaza could be less targeted. And that's because it appears to be ethnic cleansing, not a counter-terrorism operation. Now, we'll be discussing in detail later in the show um, the charges of genocide against Israel, 
the ethnic cleansing we're seeing. For now, though, and we're going to stay on the possibilities of this conflict spreading, and we can turn to Iran, which itself was subject to two bomb attacks today. This was the moment the first blast occurred in the city of Kerman during a ceremony near the tomb of Qasem Soleimani. He's the Iranian general who was assassinated by the US four years ago today. A second blast struck minutes later, which killed many people who had rushed to the scene of the first. Iranian officials have said the bombs killed 103 people and injured 171, making it the deadliest attack in the Islamic Republic in decades. Iranian officials have called the attacks an act of terrorism and state television has reported that the two bombs were planted on the route of the ceremony and then detonated remotely. No group or state has claimed responsibility for the bombs. Earlier today, I spoke to Vice President of the Quincy Institute, Trita Parsi. He's an expert on Iran and author of the book Treacherous Alliance on Israeli-Iranian Relations. I began by asking Trita for his response to that explosion in Iran. Clearly, uh, speculation immediately goes to Israel, and I think it is quite likely that the Israelis may have had a hand in this. But there are also other cult potential culprits. I mean, you have the Islamic State of the Khorasan province who are have been operating in Iran before, have conducted terrorist attacks there before, uh, and of course, plenty of them in Afghanistan. You also have the MEK terrorist organization who has been on the U.S.'s terrorist list as well as the European one, were taken off it for very political reasons, but have largely remained true to its terrorist roots. But even if it is the MEK, it actually would mean that there is some sort of Israeli dimension likely because the MEK is the group that the Israelis use earlier on to penetrate Iran and, and conduct assassinations of Iranian scientists, for instance. Uh, if there's a more direct involvement by the Israelis in this, which we, of course, at this don't point don't know for certain, then it would be a break with um, the type of attacks the Israelis have done in Iran in the past. Um, and so for some people, they think that that is unlikely. They may be right. But I think also mindful of what happened against Hamas, uh, against Israel by Hamas on October 7th, the manner in which the Israelis are very openly saying that there is no such thing as civilians in Gaza, there is no such things as innocents in Gaza. We may have seen a broader shift in perspective on the Israeli side in which um, uh, attacks of this kind, which they may have shunned in the past, uh, are things that they're willing to consider now because the gloves are off, essentially. One attack we are more sure about the culprit um, is the assassination of a Hamas leader in Beirut. Can you talk about how, how provocative that is, or is this the kind of thing that we sort of normally see states do? They sort of assassinate military leaders in, in neighboring states. I mean, what's your comment on that? Actually, we didn't seem to see this in a manner in which one could say that this is some sort of a norm that has been accepted. But after the uh, global war on terror and the way the United States uh, justified its attacks against uh, um, uh, military assets in other countries that the U.S. said were terrorists, we have now seen a mushrooming of other states also doing it using the same um, uh, justification. Uh, we see the Iranians use it in Iraq, the Turks are using it in Syria, the Azerbaijanis used it in Armenia, the Russians use it in Ukraine, uh, the U.S. continues to use it throughout the Middle East, and of course the Israelis use it. The Israelis used it long before, but now they have an easier time justifying it using that norm if they so choose. But what I think is the biggest issue here is not necessarily that this is a break or a particularly different manner uh, of conduct by the Israelis is that it's taking place in the context in which it's very clear that such a step at this moment will be seen by Hezbollah as a provocation that may, many very well may risk a broader military confrontation, one that the Israelis increasingly seem to want. The United States doesn't seem to want it, but the Israelis do want it. And that raises the question as to whether these attacks, and potentially the one in Iran as well, are part of a pattern of provocations in the hope of getting a response that would provide a pretext for widening the war. So could you sort of explain for our audience why Israel might want to do that? Because obviously opening loads of new fronts in a war is a is a risky thing to do. So why might that be something that's desirable for the Israelis? 
Well, first, when it comes to uh, Lebanon and Hezbollah, a, a new paradigm seems to have taken root in Israel, in which the argument essentially is Israel thought that it could manage the threat from Hamas. It was proven wrong. It cost them a lot of lives. And as a result, that's out. No more managing of threats. You have to eliminate them. And you simply cannot expect that Israelis should live next to Hezbollah, just miles away, north of the border, in the manner that the Israelis live next to Hamas and uh, uh, Gaza. So the thinking there is, in order for these Israelis to be safe, you have to um, uh, either eliminate Hezbollah or to push them further north so that uh, their ability to be able to conduct a, an attack such as the one that Hamas did uh, simply will not be in the cards. So you've gone from managing the threat to eliminating the threat. That's first when it comes to enlarging the war in um Lebanon. According to the Biden administration, incidentally, this is what the Israelis wanted to do from the outset after October 7th. Um, and uh, the Biden administration claims that it managed to talk the Israelis out of. We seem to be back to square one, however, because the Israelis are moving in this direction while the United States continues to insist that it does not want to see such an escalation. When it comes to expanding the war to Iran, we have to remember this is what the Israelis have been doing for the last 20 years. From the last 20 years, the Israelis have wanted to see the United States attack Iran militarily. And part of doing that, one potential pathway for that, was for the Israelis to do something provocative that would have generated an Iranian response, which would then have brought a bigger war that brought the U.S. into it. So... Um, what you have now is a president that appears to be more deferential to the Israelis than any of the previous ones when it comes to this score. I mean, previous presidents actually did quite a lot to prevent the Israelis from going to war uh, with Iran, including Biden's former boss, Obama. But the manner in which Biden has been so deferential to the Israelis on Gaza may be perceived by the Israelis as an opportunity in which the thing that they have tried to do for 20 years and have failed finally may be possible because of the way that Biden is likely, or they think Biden is likely to go along with it, or at least accept it. I suppose I want to sort of distinguish between sort of going along with it and accepting it, because there's one thing which is sort of the Americans to sort of say, okay, yeah, you, you, you can go to war with Lebanon now and we'll also sort of cover your back diplomatically. The other sort of extreme, or not the other extreme, sort of along that spectrum is the Americans say, we will join you in this war. And I suppose to what extent does Israel need the Americans to get militarily involved? Or do they feel that they can sort of take on Gaza, take on Lebanon, potentially take on Iran all by them all by themselves? You have to absolutely have to make a distinction there. And I think the Israelis are not counting on the Biden administration accepting in the terms of giving a green light. That's why they need a provocation to generate an attack by the other side that will then give the pretext for an Israeli attack. And after that, similar to what happened when Hamas attacked uh, Israel, the calculation is that whatever hesitations and opposition existed before, they will be largely weakened uh, uh, as a result of either Hezbollah or Iran having attacked Israel. Uh, but to get to that point, you may need provocations or uh, a bit of an escalatory ladder that kind of gives the Israelis um, uh, some plausible deniability. Uh, again, similar to October 7th, history started on October 7th, not the previous 75 years of occupation, etc., etc. As to whether the Israelis can do it on, on their own, look, the Israelis actually cannot continue the war in Gaza on their own. In the absence of constant replenishing of ammunition and weapons shipments by the United States, according to an Israeli um, uh, general himself, the, the Israelis would have to stop the war rather quickly because they simply don't have the, the ammunition and the weapons available to conduct that type of a war for that long, particularly mindful of the very large number of munitions that they're dropping on Gaza. Similar thing would happen with uh, Lebanon. It certainly was the case in 2006. But when it comes to Iran, I think the Israeli calculation from the very beginning has been they cannot defeat Iran militarily because of distance and many other reasons, but they can do something that they believe can drag the U.S. into the war. And that would, of course, dramatically change the equation. That was Trita Parsi speaking to me earlier today about a very, very worrying moment. I mean, as we're going to talk about, we don't need speculation to talk about how 
worrying and concerning what is going on right now. The ethnic cleansing of Gaza is is already horrific enough already. But if this did become a regional war, that would mean a lot more people dying, a lot more civilians dying, and a lot more instability in the region, you know, ISIS-style state collapse, um, where you really can't guess what would emerge. And my concern here is, is that so, so I suppose the narrative at the beginning of this war was sort of how much can Israel get away with in Gaza without the axis of resistance? So that sort of Iran, Hezbollah, the Houthis sort of making or creating consequences for, for Israel. Say, so if, if you cross this line, I mean, people used to talk about if, they, if, 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 the, if there's a ground invasion, Hezbollah will have to respond. And it seems up to this point that Hezbollah, Iran really haven't been that keen to get involved. They they don't want to get drawn into this war um, because they understand what the consequences w- would be. Um, but it seems to me that Israel is, is kind of gagging for this to expand. I mean, the the assassination of someone in, or of, of, of a Hamas leader in, in, in Beirut. Now, I've, I've got absolutely no idea um, the, the source of this bomb in, in Iran. I know lots of analysts have said this does not sort of have the fingerprints of Israel on it. It doesn't seem to be what they would normally do. Um, but their actions do seem to me to be provocative in, in in many different ways. And my concern is is that, as Trita said there, this is because they feel like, oh, well, while they're in the heat of the moment, they can sort of achieve their goals elsewhere as well. They want to clear out the, sub, the south of Lebanon of Hezbollah. Um, they want to weaken Iran in the region. But I also think that expanding the war could serve another purpose, which is that the more chaotic this gets the more Israel thinks it can get away with in Gaza, right? So I think they understand that what they're doing in Gaza is illegal. The ethnic cleansing of the Strip is illegal. You know, killing all of these civilians is illegal. But if they can say this was under the cloud of an existential war, if this becomes all-out war between Israel, Lebanon, Iran, and the Americans are involved, they can just sort of basically do what they want under the cover of war, create new facts on the ground. You get to the end of the war and say, oh, well, in the middle of that war, it just so happens that we cleared two million people out of Gaza and we're not going to let them back in because of what happened last time. That's what I'm worried about here. Next story. For weeks now, Israel's war on Gaza has been described by scholars and activists as genocidal. But at the end of December, South Africa became the first country to make that case formally to the International Court of Justice. The Israeli government has responded aggressively. Here is Israeli government spokesperson Elon Levy. The State of Israel emphatically condemns South Africa's decision to play advocate for the devil and to make itself criminally complicit with the perpetrators of the October 7 massacre. On October 7, South Africa openly aligned itself with the Hamas rapist regime when it blamed Israel for Hamas's violation of the ceasefire and covered up Hamas's crimes against humanity. It is now aiding and abetting that machinery of genocide. In giving political and legal cover to the October 7 massacre and the Hamas human shield strategy, South Africa has made itself criminally complicit with Hamas's campaign of genocide against our people. It shares culpability for the tragic loss of human life. The State of Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice at The Hague to dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel. How tragic that the rainbow nation that prides itself on fighting racism will be fighting pro bono for anti-Jewish racists. How disgusting that the rainbow, ra- the, the, the rainbow nation which fought against racism would, would um, accuse Israel of genocide. Maybe it's not a coincidence, right? Maybe it's not a coincidence that the state, the nation that fought against apartheid and won, is now taking the lead when it comes to trying to hold Israel to account, the other apartheid state, right? And you heard Elon Levy there say, South Africa's decision to play advocate for the devil now, that's a pretty crazed style of language to be using from a government official, and it couldn't be further from the measured forensic case that South Africa builds against Israel in its 84-page submission to the court. They're asking the court to impose, quote, provisional measures to prevent Israel from carrying out further genocidal acts against the Palestinians in Gaza. This is how the filing begins. The acts and omissions by Israel complained of by South Africa are genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group, that being the part of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip, Palestinians in Gaza. The acts in question include killing Palestinians in Gaza, causing them serious bodily and mental harm, and inflicting on them conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction. The acts are all attributable to Israel, which has failed to prevent genocide and is committing genocide in manifest violation 
of the Genocide Convention and which has also violated and is continuing to violate its other fundamental obligations under the Genocide Convention, including by failing to prevent or punish the direct and public incitement to genocide by senior Israeli officials and others. Now, defending Israel against those claims, we can show you spokesperson Elon Levy again, who went on to say this. While the Hamas rapist regime does everything to maximize civilian casualties with its despicable human shield strategy, Israel is employing measures unprecedented in the history of warfare to minimize civilian casualties. We have been clear in word and in deed that we are targeting the October 7 monsters and are innovating ways to uphold international law, including the principles of proportionality, precaution, and distinction in the context of a counter-terror battlefield no army has faced before. It's like watching a pantomime, isn't it? It's just like, how sort of hyperbolic can he get in his language when they're the country committing genocide, right? in my opinion? Um, how do those claims he made there stack up against the evidence South Africa has compiled? Well, Levy mentioned the principles of proportionality, precaution, and distinction. But the death toll in Gaza now stands at over 22,000. That's according, of course, to the Gazan Health Ministry, whose numbers always add up. Around 40% of those killed are children and thousands more Palestinians are believed to be under rubble. It's very difficult to see how that kind of slaughter could result from an operation conducted with precaution, precision or distinction. And as the South African case points out, Israel continues to engage in the killing of Gazan civilians, including children. There are now countless examples of this, including Israel's bombing last week of a neighborhood of Rafa, which Israel had called safe. 20 Palestinians were reported killed in the attack, and among the injured was this young girl buried in the rubble. She survived, but in a single day, 210 Palestinians were reported killed across Gaza. South Africa also accuses Israel of, quote, imposing measures intended to prevent Palestinian births. This includes the destruction of health services crucial for pregnant mothers and newborns. On Tuesday, Israel bombed a hospital in Khan Yunis. UN worker Gemma Connell gave this report to the BBC. This afternoon, I went to visit a hospital, the Al-Amal Hospital in Khan Yunis, uh, just a little bit north. It had been hit by a strike this afternoon. There was a huge hole in the wall. The strike killed at least five people, including a baby, baby Zachariah, who was just five days old. And the scene I can only describe as horrifying and heart shattering. Diapers on the floor, clear evidence that people, babies had been living there. And just a few hours before people celebrating the birth of Zachariah, just five days old, and now he's dead. But it's not just killing civilians that South Africa accuses Israel of. It also says Israel is inflicting serious bodily and mental harm on Palestinians in Gaza, including children. And it says that Israel is creating, quote, conditions of life intended to bring about their destruction as a group. On Boxing Day in Rafa, 80 unidentified Palestinians killed by Israel's bombardment were bulldozed into a mass grave. The bodies had been brought south from northern Gaza, where they were killed in Israel's ground offensive. Imagine the mental strain. You're a refugee living in a tent far from home. You might be bombed at any moment. And if you are, you risk nameless burial in a mass grave. Also cited in the filing is mass displacement and the destruction of homes and neighbourhoods, leaving nowhere for Palestinians to return to. This footage, shot in the final days of 2023, shows tents in Rafa, where thousands of internally displaced Gazan refugees have tried to find safety. Of course, there is no safety in Gaza. And this is what those refugees have fled. This was once a neighbourhood in Tal al-Zatar, that's in northern Gaza. Now it is unrecognisable. These scenes are replicated across the north of the territory, with more than two-thirds of buildings destroyed. The Norwegian Refugee Council reckons that clearing the rubble alone will take at least a year, while rebuilding just the destroyed housing will take seven to ten years. South Africa also cites Israel's siege, accusing the country of, quote, deprivation of access to adequate food and water. In Rafa, there are long queues for the little food that's crossing the border from Egypt. And according to the UN, half of Gaza's population is now starving. And with lengthy triple inspections imposed on aid trucks, as well as almost constant bombardment, Israel appears to want to keep it that way. But South Africa's most general claim is that Israel is responsible for the destruction of the life of the Palestinian people in Gaza. This appears to be something Israel is now doing remarkably casually. 
This was the Al-Maghazi refugee camp after Israel bombed it on Christmas Eve. More than 100 Palestinians were reported killed in the blasts. The attack on a crowded residential block was described as a massacre. This is how Israel responded to that claim. What is your understanding as to what took place there on Christmas Eve? My understanding is, as a military spokesperson has told Israeli television, an incorrect munition was used in that strike. We, of course, do our best to be targeted and precise and to target the Hamas terrorists and do everything to get civilians out of harm's way. And it appears that in this mistake in war, a mistake was made and we are learning lessons. We are learning lessons. We're admitting to our mistakes. You've killed 22,000 people, 40% of them children, right? Now, one, a mistake where you kill 100 people, right? That's not just any old mistake. It's also a mistake that can only happen in the context of a war where you are bombing people constantly, right? If you're, if you're dropping all of these bombs on a civilian population, then you're going to make some mistakes along the way. But also the idea that they're only killing civilians by mistake, I mean, the numbers do not lie. And we're hearing so many Israeli politicians saying that making life impossible in Gaza is part of the project. That is part of the project to get people out of the strip. Not necessarily so Israel can annex it, maybe, but so they can see the problem of Palestinians in Gaza as gone. That's what they want. Now, a final feature of South Africa's case is that Israel has repeatedly failed to punish officials who make genocidal statements. These include those involving mass relocation, like this reported by the Times of Israel. Israeli officials are currently reported to be in talks with countries, including the Democratic Republic of Congo, to serve as destinations for the, quote, voluntary migration of Gazans. Now, of course, that migration wouldn't be particularly voluntary when your homes, livelihoods and families have been destroyed. And when you're constantly trying to avoid bombs falling from the sky, right? You cannot call that migration which was done by choice. The Jerusalem Post has also reported this from Israeli finance minister Bezalel Smotrich in the past day. He's accused all two million Palestinians in Gaza of wanting to murder and rape Israelis. That is genocidal language. Smotrich is just the latest Israeli government or military official to try to justify genocide in Gaza by demonizing Palestinian civilians. On Sunday, he also called for the removal of Palestinians from the territory to make way from Israel for Israelis who could, quote, make the desert blooms. That's language um, that was sort of common in the original Zionist movement. Um, he went on to say this. Let's think out of the box. If in Gaza there will be 100,000 or 200,000 Arabs and not 2 million, the entire conversation on the day after will look different. So that's uh, what I've been talking about, changing facts on the ground. What Israel wants to do is change facts on the ground in the heat of war. So afterwards they can say, oh yeah, I mean, we didn't really want to do this, but we're not going to bring them back now, are we? Obviously in a, in a peaceful, normal situation, it's going to be very difficult to get the international community to agree to, for the mass expulsion of 2 million people. But if you can say, oh, this was just an accidental consequence of war, and now it's happened, you know, we, wouldn't, we, we didn't want to kick them out, but now they're out, why would we let them back in? That seems to be Israel's strategy. The US has called these statements inflammatory and irresponsible, but so far not a word from Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And of course, the United States will keep arming Israel and Benjamin Netanyahu to the teeth. So them calling them inflammatory. I have absolutely no sympathy, no respect. I'm not remotely impressed when the United States says, oh, this language is inflammatory. If you think it's so inflammatory, then stop arming the country, the army, doing it, right? No one cares if you condemn this or that statement. What matters is that you are materially supporting this being carried out. You are materially supporting a genocide. Oh, they've used some uncouth language. Who cares? What we care about is the reality that 22,000 people have been killed with American bombs, with American support. So the evidence of genocide is strong, but will South Africa's case make any difference? Francis Boyle is a US lawyer who won a genocide case against Serbia in the ICJ following the Bosnian War. He told Democracy Now! how he expects the case to go and what the wider implications might be. Based on my careful review of all the documents so far submitted by the Republic of South Africa, uh, I believe South Africa will win an order against Israel to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide uh, against the Palestinians. And then we will have an official determination 
by the International Court of Justice itself, the highest uh, legal authority in the United Nations system, that genocide is going on. And under Article 1 of the Genocide Convention, all contracting parties, 153 states, will then be obliged, quote, to prevent, unquote, the genocide by Israel against the Palestinians. Second, when the World Court gives this cease and desist order against Israel, the Biden administration will stand condemned under Article 3, Paragraph E of the Genocide Convention that criminalizes complicity in genocide. And clearly, we know that the Biden administration has been aiding and abetting Israeli genocide against the Palestinians here for quite some time. Uh, this uh, uh, has also been raised by my friends in the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, and in uh, the National Lawyers Guild in a lawsuit uh, against Biden, Blinken, and, uh, and Austin. So I believe uh, we will be able to use uh, the, the World Court order. Uh, right now, my sources tell me the hearing will be January 11, January 12. Based on my experience with the Bosnians, uh, we can expect an order uh, within a week. South Africa has now confirmed that the initial hearing with the um, International Court of Justice will take place on January 11th. Um, I'm joined now by Ash Sarkar. Um, I know that neither of us are sort of experts when it comes to sort of the workings of the International Court of Justice or international law. I mean, it does seem very significant to me, though, that this was... Well, one, that we are now sort of discussing a legal case of genocide. It's not just being talked about by scholars, but a, a state has brought this to the international court and also the state who has brought it. So it is South Africa. That does seem quite significant to me, symbolically at least. There's an added layer of symbolism when you consider the history of relations between South Africa and Israel. When South Africa was an apartheid state, it received significant diplomatic report from Israel, and that support was a two-way street. It's always been, I think, a matter of uh, embarrassment for Israel that the claim that it is maintaining a, an apartheid regime over the occupied West Bank is one which has been supported by not only South Africa, the state, but the individuals who participated in the anti-apartheid movement and who helped usher South Africa into a democratic era. One of the things that you often hear from apologists for uh, the Israeli uh, state is that to call it an apartheid state is an insult to the severity of what went on in South Africa, whereas actually South Africans who lived under apartheid saying, no, what you are doing is apartheid. I think something which I want to talk about is the utter gross hypocrisy and the callousness that exists in much of British media when considering this allegation that what Israel is doing in Gaza is both genocide and a failure to prevent genocide because it is a series of actions which is intended and is resulting in the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian people. I was on uh, BBC Radio 5 last week because I'm really bad at taking time off work. And one of the individuals who was on the panel with me is someone who is sort of positioned as something of a foreign affairs expert. In one section, we were discussing Ukraine. It had been the night after a uh, significant barrage of uh, of bombing um, by Russia against the city of Kiev. I believe 16 people were killed. And every one of those 16 civilian deaths is, is a an abomination, right? Um, each one of those civilians didn't deserve to die, and each one of those civilians is evidence of a war crime. Uh, committed by the Russian state. And this was something which this particular individual, this foreign affairs expert, was very happy to say, quite unequivocally, he said, you know, this is happening because Russia wants to cause as much suffering to the civilian population of Ukraine as possible. The next topic was Gaza. And um, 
he just said, well, you know, that's urban warfare. I don't want to minimize the suffering of the Palestinian people, but it's urban warfare. Everyone knows that's really difficult. So a conflict which has killed about 10, 11,000 people in the space of uh, two years, that is rightly being condemned. But a completely asymmetric bombardment of an open-air prison which has killed uh, you know at least 22,000 people in the space of three months oh you know that's urban warfare don't want to minimize the suffering but uh, I guess that's war and I refer to it as ethnic cleansing his excuse was well it can't be ethnic cleansing because these aren't people who are being forced across borders and also uh, the Israeli army drops leaflets um, now one the definition of ethnic cleansing has never been the displacement of people across borders. There's such things as internally displaced por- uh, persons. The crime against humanity of forcible transfer, again, it doesn't have to be across borders. Um, and secondly, as you pointed out, Michael, um, yes, the IDF has been instructing civilians to leave particular areas. That's not to go to safe areas. New York Times investigation has found at least 200 occasions in which civilians have been killed after being instructed to move to an area that they have been told to move to because it was supposedly safe. Now, that is not the actions of an army which is trying uh, in any meaningful way to prevent the loss of civilian life. This is an army which wants to do the bare minimum to secure the diplomatic cover of Western nations, and in particular the United States. It's got nothing to do with the preservation of life at all. And what is deeply frustrating about the way in which the uh, South African uh, indictment of what Israel is doing in Gaza has been reported in the British press has been almost like something of a tiff. So, you know, Israel is outraged at this very substantive legal argument being made by South Africa. It is presented as if it is just a mudslinging match rather than a proper attempt to use uh, the institutions that we have, uh, which are intended to try and uphold and implement international law to try and stop a crime against humanity in its tracks. And that is, I think, a failure of, um, I think, a baseful duty to truthfulness uh, amongst the British media. I think it speaks to the deep pro-Israel bias that exists within uh, British media. And I think it also speaks to a profound racism against the Palestinian people, which renders their suffering minimal compared to the scale on which it actually exists. So many of our audience will have seen um, you know, significant people in the mainstream media and politicians. You know, All of our leading politicians essentially seem to have a very different approach to Palestinian lives, to Ukrainian lives, right? Doesn't mean that doesn't mean oh they should start valuing Ukrainian lives as, as lowly as they do Palestinian lives. It means that we should raise up everyone so that we sort of recognise that actually universal human rights matter. Um, just a clarification. I, I know you said um, ten to eleven thousand people have been killed in um, Russia's war on Ukraine. That's the civilian casualties. Now, of course, you know, in law and ethically, we might you know say killing civilians is worse than killing military. Um, but you know, I think people in the Ukrainian military or people in most militaries, you know. They haven't always chosen to do it. I mean, in Ukraine, they definitely haven't chosen to do it because they've been conscripted um, to do it. So that's why sort of, you know, if you start a war of aggression, I do think you're responsible for the for the military people you kill as well as the civilians, even if it's not sort of the same kind of war crime. Let's go on to our next story for now. England's junior doctors have begun a six-day strike. It's set to be the longest strike in the history of the NHS, and it means that around half of England's doctors will stop working. NHS bosses say that in many areas, routine services will come to a halt, but doctors say they have no choice but to strike after the government missed every opportunity to reach a deal with them. Rob Lawrenson is co-chair of the British Medical Association's Junior Doctors Committee. He explained to Sky why the strike is happening. The government have failed to present us with a credible offer. We opened negotiations in October and November when the government finally re-invited us back in after six months of silence. And we agreed a deadline and a time frame for those talks to occur. But the government failed to present us with a credible offer that would be able to see doctors uh, find their pay restored back to 2008 levels and reverse the 26% deep pay cuts that doctors have had. The doctors are calling for pay restoration. They say they've suffered a 26% real terms pay cut since 2008. That's in the context of rising workloads and waiting lists at record highs. 
What the doctor said they want is for those cuts to be reversed, which equates to a 35% uplift. But they've also been clear that they're prepared to consider any credible offer. Last year, the government abandoned negotiations and imposed an 8.8% pay rise on the doctors. That's nominal, of course, not real. In December, the doctors rejected a new government offer of a below inflation 3% increase this year. Speaking on Radio 4's Today programme, junior doctor Vivek Trivedi explained why. Would you accept a lower pay offer perhaps with the promise of future talks on pay restoration or changes to the pay review bodies? We would definitely review any offer that's put forward, bring back to something that I heard in the introduction. We're not asking for any uh, uplift or you know pay restoration to happen overnight. We're not even saying it has to happen in one year. We were very happy to look over deals that would span a number of years. But what we need to do is to start a way towards that and and especially not further the pay erosion. And that average 3% uplift would have still amounted to pay cuts for many doctors this year. Health Secretary Victoria Atkins said this about the failure of December's talks. I want to resolve this. I want to find a fair and reasonable settlement, as I have with consultants and with specialty doctors. Uh, And I was very disappointed when the Junior Doctors Committee uh, walked out of our negotiations and then called these strikes. We know um, that they have a very real impact for people, um, including, of course, the 88,000 appointments that were cancelled in the last three days of industrial action just before Christmas. And so I very much hope the Junior Doctor, the Junior Doctors Committee will um, call off the strikes and then we can get back round the negotiating table to ensure that we can find a settlement for patients. What Atkins is admitting there is that the government won't even negotiate while the doctors are on strike. But is that a reasonable position? And is it one that puts patient safety front and centre? Here's Vivek Trevedi on Radio 4 again. What the government is saying in terms of the negotiations is that while the strike action is going on, while there's threat of strike action, it's not possible for them to hold negotiations. So why not pause the industrial action to allow talks to take place? So that's a rule of their own making, which there's no law that prevents them from talking to us while strike action is happening. And in fact, we saw this same government uh, adopt a different approach when they were dealing with the criminal barristers. They negotiated with the barristers and stopped them from striking whilst they were striking by coming up with an offer that was uh, appropriate to put to their membership. But in terms of pausing strike action, we've seen what happens when we don't call for strike action. We were raising concerns about pay for for months, if not years, prior to calling for strike action and were ignored by the government. The nurses are still in dispute, but but they're not striking and the government is ignoring them. The situation for junior doctors in England stands in stark contrast to that of their colleagues in Scotland. Last year, Scottish doctors balloted for industrial action over pay, but the SNP government agreed a 17.5% increase over two years, as well as a promise to work towards pay restoration over time. 82% of the BMA's junior doctors in Scotland agreed to the terms and all strikes were averted. Scotland's First Minister, Hamza Youssef, was keen to draw attention to that successful strategy today, saying this, six days of junior doctor strikes in England, all because of a UK government that chooses tax cuts for the wealthy, overpaying NHS staff fairly. We have taken different choices in Scotland and avoided a single day of NHS strikes. Our budget gives the NHS a real terms increase. Earlier today, I spoke to John Puntis. He's co-chair of Keep Our NHS Public and a retired consultant paediatrician with 40 years of experience in the NHS. I started by asking him about the impact that these strikes will have. The damage is actually quite difficult to quantify, but the key thing is that... um, consultants and senior staff will have been prepared to step in uh, and certainly deal with emergency situations, intensive care and what have you. Um, They will be taken away from their normal activities of uh, outpatient clinics and that's where the main impact will be. Uh, Does it matter that outpatient appointments are cancelled in some situations? No. But in others, yes. But overall, it's very difficult to quantify. Uh, I think with the preparation that has been made and the consultant cover, uh, the damage will be, I think, limited. It will be confined as much as possible. And will this strike be 
especially problematic for the NHS because of the time of year it's taking place. Obviously, we're used to hearing about winter crises. Um, at the moment, there are high levels of COVID and various other um, respiratory diseases sort of circulating. Could you talk about yeah, the, the time of the year that this is taking place? I mean, I retired um, five years ago now uh, from an acute specialty, but I am in touch with uh, both junior and senior doctors who are still working. And to be honest, no one really talks about the winter crisis anymore because it goes on all year. So things are really uh, very busy in hospital pretty much all year round. Uh, and there are some fluctuations, I would accept that. Um, and certainly in the winter, there'll be more respiratory infections around, as you've suggested. But actually, everyone is is working at capacity pretty much all year long. And so I think the idea that somehow things just get busy at uh, Christmas, New Year, I think is wrong. And I'm sure our audience will have the utmost um, solidarity and sympathy with, with junior doctors who've gone through you know, a really horrific experience during COVID-19 and are pretty much systematically undervalued by the UK government. At the same time, it does seem to me there could be a bit of a legitimacy problem um, with these strikes. And that's because um, lower paid workers in the NHS have accepted pay deals which are worse than what the doctors are, are asking for. So nurses um, being the most obvious example here. So do you think there is uh, maybe tension and within the NHS workforce or a legitimacy problem um, because lower paid workers have accepted their deals and it's now higher paid workers, so junior doctors, who are holding out? Well, potentially um, that's a problem. But on the other hand, I think a, a win for the juniors in terms of a higher settlement than they've so far been offered and one that they could agree to actually will uh, be something that other staff will look at and say, well, you know, maybe we could have done better. Uh, and I think in any case, there's likely to be calls for fresh strike action next year from the nurses, for example. So I, I don't think the lower paid staff will begrudge the doctors, but I think it probably will make them think about um, uh, taking further strike action themselves in the relatively near future. And it seems likely that these strikes will be continuing into the next general election, if and when Labour get into power, what do you think they would need to do to, to end all of this? Well, I hope that they would uh, concede to the junior doctors uh, a higher pay rise has been offered so far, that they would put in place some mechanism uh, to bring about full pay restoration over a relatively short period of time that they would take moves to make the review bodies more independent of government when it comes to recommending pay rises for uh, staff, and that they would also be happy to discuss how to prevent such major erosion of pay uh, as we've seen over the last 13 years, which has actually now culminated in this strike. That was John Puntis speaking to me earlier today. But what do the public think of the strikes? Well, the most recent polling is from September. And back then, YouGov found that voters blamed the government more than the BMA for the disruption. That was with 45% saying it was the government's fault. Just 21% thought the BMA was to blame. Also in September, an Ipsos poll found that 53% of the public supported the doctors, and that was down 1% on a similar poll in April. My colleague Ash Sarkar has appeared on Good Morning Britain, where that slight slip in public support came up. Does it matter that they do appear to be gradually losing public sympathy? And they've still got a lot, but they seem to be... I think it is, I think it is deteriorating because it's been going on too long. So, I, Well, it does to the government. Well, the thing is, is that... Doctors are voting with their feet at the moment. Mm. Four in ten junior doctors report that they will consider quitting if they can find a different job. Mm. You have an exodus of doctors moving to Australia. Now, these are doctors who've been trained on our taxpayer dime. So public sympathy, of course, is important. But what's more important is that if we continue along these lines, where junior doctors' pay has been devalued a huge amount since the Conservative government came in in 2010, we won't have an NHS at all. I, I agree it has been devalued, but so has many other people's pay in the public sector. And let's not forget the private sector. It's 
but the same has happened there. Mm. I know they're a special case, but not that special that yeah. they can be paid well, 35% more. Our lives are in their hands. Exactly. It's, and they ha there is a Hippocratic Oath they take, which sa says that they will not do anything that harms patients. Yeah. What is this strike doing? It's harming mm. patients. Actually, Although working actually, long hours and not being properly valued, they might well, argue harms patients yeah. as actually, well. <laughs> it seems really, I think, unfair to sort of throw the Hippocratic Oath against the doctors when it comes to them sort of fighting for pay and, and, and conditions. Because it's essentially saying, oh, you've taken this really tough job with a lot of responsibility. And because you've done that, oh, I'm afraid you're not going to be able to fight for your rights. Right? So we as journalists, we might be able to sort of say, oh, I'm not going to do that job if I, if I don't get paid this much. But you, you guys, I mean, you have a moral obligation to just sort of just take it. Um, Ash, I know you've sort of been going on the media discussing this. I mean, I suppose I find it, I mean, to be honest, the answer there from John um, was, was effective, I thought. But Sort of, I think one of the strongest arguments is when they say, well, the nurses accepted it. Why are the doctors holding out for longer than everyone else in the NHS when actually you know, they're relatively well paid, both compared to their colleagues and compared to the country at large? I mean, how do you respond to that kind of um, push? I mean, so the first thing is that it's up to a trade union to democratically decide its strategy. If a different trade union takes a different approach, it's kind of up to them. But what you've seen with more militant trade unions is that they've often been better at both defending existing uh, rights and conditions and also bettering them. So that would be the thing that I'd say. It's not about having to sort of decide between, you know, the nurses and the doctors, like, oh, okay, well, what's a what's a reasonable amount to accept? It's sort of, you know, that's if you've if you've got the leverage and you've got a mandate for it, you can your mandate is to sort of see how far you can push that leverage. Um that's what I think the job of organised labour is to do, really. Um, the second thing is that when you look at the devaluing of junior doctors' uh, wages since 2008, I mean, it really has been astonishing. We're talking about 35%. Um, that is a long-side uh, increased cost of study, which, of course, uh, nurses are hit by as well, as well as the scrapping of the uh, nurse training bursary, and an increased cost of living and a staffing crisis because people who are trained here are working elsewhere. So if a pathway towards a 35% restoration is what's needed to have adequate staffing in the NHS, well, that's what's needed. I find it kind of ironic that right-wingers are all up for market forces, supply and demand in every other aspect of our lives. But when it comes to uh, people making a choice about where they want to work according to what they're being offered, suddenly they absolutely can't abide it. And ultimately, who is it that's losing out? It's patients. It's all of us who are reliant on a functioning NHS. So that for me is, is the case I make. Is it's not really about the morality. It's not really about going like, oh, you know, are you asking for too much compared to this other group of workers? For me, it's about going, okay, well, what does this union have a mandate for? Um, you know, do they have enough support amongst their membership for a particular strategy? And then they've got to go for it. Thank you all for tuning in. We're here again tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.